Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. My name's Kim Aquaviva, and I'm your host. This season, we're exploring people's lived experiences of diversity and difference in the healthcare arena. We're on this journey together, so let us know where you're tuning in from today. Take a selfie and tweet it using the hashtag MDASHpodcast. We'll do the same. So today we're speaking with Dr. Mitch Tepper, an internationally recognized sexuality educator, disability expert, and pioneer in the application of telemedicine to sexual health. Welcome to MDASH. How are you, Dr. Tepper? Great, Kimberly. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So first off, how would you like me to address you? Do you go by Mitch, Dr. Tepper? What's your preference? Oh, it depends who's talking to me, but I feel, <laughs> in, this, I feel it's in this context, Mitch will be fine. Okay, great, Mitch. Well, I go, I go by Kim as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking with you today. So first off, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of the words you use to describe yourself in terms of your identity? Wow, I do have a number of words I use to describe myself. Uh, first, I call myself the prophet of pleasure. I also identify as a sexual entrepreneur by default. Uh, I identify as a husband, a father, a person with a disability, a man of faith, and a lifeguard. So I love the prophet of pleasure. How did that name come about? How did you come up with that? Well, you know, as an expert in the area of sexual health, there's a lot of things you could focus on. Um, I chose to focus on uh, the pleasurable aspects of sex because I work with people with disabilities and chronic conditions uh, who have lost something and help them regain uh, a sense of a, a sense of pleasure in in their sexuality and in their sexual lives. And um, so I, I stayed away from you know sex as danger, mm-hmm. and sex as unwanted pregnancies, and sex as violence. Uh, to, to focus on this aspect of people's lives. And then why the profit of pleasure? Because, uh, you know, I feel like my work is a calling. So that takes it to kind of a spiritual level. And I also do it most of the time for nothing. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so it's, so it's, it's almost a mission of like spreading the word and the gospel and not getting paid because of the kind of work. And that kind of takes me into the sexual entrepreneur by default. So, you know, I thought, you know, as a as a person with a disability, I was having problems, you know, getting getting a job. Even though I had a, you know, first a, a, a summa cum laude, I graduated with a degree in finance, uh, and then went to work for a while, but not exactly what I what I was aiming for. And then I went back and got a master's in public health. And then I said to myself, if I get a PhD, yeah, I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> well, I got a PhD in human sexuality education. You know. <laughs> The education, I think, was my downfall as far as for Uh-oh. financially, uh, because without it, everyone assumes I'm a, a mental health professional and mm. I'm not a, I'm an educator. And I am a ASEC certified counselor, uh, but you don't need to be a licensed mental health professional for that. So, uh, you know, for the type of work I like to do, uh, not being a mental health professional has closed a lot of doors, you know, working in hospitals and working for the VA and stuff like that. So I have a degree in business and finance. And once upon a time, I set up a company, the Sexual Health Network, and a website, sexualhealth.com. And I had that for 15 years. It's a fabulous website. From 1996 to 2010. So I needed to call on my business background to kind of create my own pathway, my own career path. Uh, to, to continue to do what I love, which is work in the area of sexuality, disability, and chronic conditions. If I was willing to um, 
just do anything in the field, I don't think I'd have a problem, you know, but I, I've been, you know, kind of on one mission, you know, to end the silence around sexuality and disability and chronic conditions. And so that's, that's, I needed to be a sexual entrepreneur um, to do it. Well, and you certainly are one. Uh, your presence on the web is impressive. You've been doing fantastic work. Um, and it seems like I run across your name all the time online, um, anything around sexual sexual health and disability. So clearly the mission that you're on is succeeding uh, and the word is getting out there as you're spreading the word. Now, you mentioned that you identify as a person with a disability. Uh, and because I know you and we've met before, I know that your disability is a spinal cord injury. How have your lived experiences as a person with a spinal cord injury influenced the way you approach your work with clients? Oh, I think it's really informed, you know, my my approach and and my educational counseling uh, practice tremendously. I mean, backing up as a person who had acquired a, a spinal cord injury at age twenty and need to needed to face sexual dysfunction, you know, erectile dysfunction ejaculatory dysfunction, loss of feeling, inability to move the way I wanted to, right? Body image issues. I had to work through them all myself, hmm. right? So I worked through them myself. Uh, I took it to a different level of eventually getting a PhD. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I, and, and, and through, you know, my deficits, I needed to learn new ways to experience pleasure myself. And so I was able to tap into you know, a lot of my, my sexuality, my sexual potential that, that most people when they don't run into having, you know, a loss, don't okay. have to explore. And so things might, you know, just, you know, get stale or, you know, uh, in, in the way they do things and they're never forced to, to expand. So now I can take all my personal experience, all my learning, you know, as a, as a sexologist and a sexuality educator and bring that to the counseling experience. So one, if someone has a disability or chronic condition, you know, just being in the same boat as them helps, helps me relate. Mm -hmm. Right. Two, that must've been shocking though, to have lost, to have had all these losses at such a young age, but then also this opportunity to tap into new strengths that you didn't know you had. Um, and in terms of your sexual potential, what was that change like for you? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think anyone who acquires some kind of traumatic injury that results in, in, in a significant loss or disability, it's going to be shocking. I, I, I do say that, like, prior to that, for me, I, I grew up with Crohn's disease, so that's invisible, right? And so I dealt with diarrhea and cramps and, you know, being small and body image issues. Uh, before, before I broke my neck, I had an ileostomy at the time, and I broke my back neck, which is like a bag I wear on my side. Uh, and so I, I think that growing up with a chronic condition, I developed pretty good coping skills already, right? And so when when I broke my neck and I woke up, you know, it was like, of course, I woke up in, in intensive care. And, sure. and I was really wondering what, what would happen. But, you know, relative to this, I mean, one of the first questions I asked uh, was when the doctor came in, will I ever be able to have children again? So I was concerned with this from that's the intensive care unit, right? So I was in a, a striker frame. So it was in traction. Uh, I had, you know, been uh, intubated before that point. So, you know, I wasn't 
I had a, had a board before that, so this is the the tube was taken out, and I was able to ask a question. And so one of the first questions I asked was was that. And so I was quite concerned about my sexuality and my sexual future, and that's how I expressed it. And unfortunately, the doctor said, you know, this was 1982. Chances are less than 10% that you ever have a child. He didn't say you can adopt. He didn't wow. say, you know, but don't worry, you'll be able to you know, have a, a fulfilling sexual life. You'll be able to get married. Nothing. It's just, he answered my question very briefly. And maybe that was true at the time. That's like without assisted reproductive technology, you know? Um, and, and I was, so I was left on my own to figure things out. Wow. So you were in asking that question, you were really looking for, um, I don't know, a, a window or a door to be open, um, or at least to know that there's a door there that you might be able to walk through. And the, yeah, and the doctor, yeah, and the doctor basically was like, "Yeah, not going to happen," um, right. which is the worst way uh, to deal with a question like that. So, what do you think? You know, what have you learned the most looking back since your spinal cord injury to now? What's the number one? insight that you've gleaned about sexuality in that time, if there is something, some nugget of wisdom, because you've been on this journey, this really hard journey, where you've also learned incredibly, um, I think, helpful, insightful things about sexuality and about your own sexual potential. Any like takeaways or things that... Well, I think that the takeaway is that, you know, our bodies, you know, are are programmed to be able to uh, experience pleasure and even orgasm from many different sources, you know, that we don't have to rely on, uh, you know, genitals and genital sex to experience pleasure and connectiveness and even orgasm. All of those things are possible and uh, the quality of the, of the pleasure and the orgasm are the same uh, or maybe equal, maybe the same is the wrong word, sure. equal but different. So, you know, I've learned personally and I teach other people through coaching, you know, how to tap into other aspects, you know, into their, you know, to, to relearn a different ways to, to get to essentially the same place, you know, whether you call it bliss or ecstasy or transcendence or, you know, complete uh, and utter relaxation, um, what, what, however you, you feel when you're in, in that spot. Um, and I have to say confirmed by research in the laboratory on brain studies of orgasm. <laughs> so so do it, you think, it, you know, I have that, you know, to back me up, to tell people, you know, <laughs> you're this, this not just a, making this up. It's this real. This isn't a real, this is, you know, <laughs> that's not an orgasm. Orgasm is ejaculation. Well, no ejaculation could, you know, stimulate, you know, or bring you to that, that level of orgasm, but orgasm really happening in your, your brain. Look, I have right. a picture this is your brain on orgasm. These are these are awesome. women with spinal cord injuries experiencing right. orgasm, you know. And so here's here it is happening in the brain. Yeah, there's some action from their fingers in their brain, you know. And here are the you know there are descriptions that people give, and scientists who don't know whether the woman was a spinal cord injury or not, hearing the descriptions can't tell which one has spinal cord injury. That's awesome. So it's it's not just I'm not just saying this like you know, from my personal experience, sure. I'm, I'm also bringing research to the table, um, showing them that, no, you know, your understanding of orgasm is just so limited. Right. Well, and, and for folks who have been 
in a body that's functioning in the more in a more traditional um, way. Someone who isn't, um, you know, kind of the the typical what what healthcare providers would think of as a quote unquote healthy body. Um, their lens about what orgasm is would be relatively narrow. It would be limited by their own experiences, and so um, it, it sounds as though having a spinal cord injury in many ways, um, although it does take away sensation, it also opens up your mind to possibilities of other kinds of sensations that are equally pleasurable and satisfying in a sexual way, um, if, if, I'm, if I'm interpreting it correctly. Yes, you are. So here's a question about healthcare professionals. So do they do a good job, in your experience, with folks who've experienced a spinal cord injury, um, helping them tap into that or supporting supporting a desire to um, really continue to have a sexual life after injury? Unfortunately not. Um, when my, I have a master's in public health, and so I did a national study of sex education and counseling and spinal cord injury rehab programs. So this is a study that was done in 1990, right? And people were in the average, you know, 11 or more years post-injury. So this goes back to the 80s, you know, and earlier when they would have gotten their rehabilitation. And so to put this in perspective, before 1983 is before DRGs, before Mm -hmm. length of stays were shortened dramatically. So people were in the hospital six months to a year. And I interviewed the first 500 people of what was the National Spinal Cord Injury Association at the time. Now it's United Spinal and um, got a very good response rate. And only half of those people, and this is spinal cord injuries that people were in the hospital. So upward over 90% of them have some type of serious sexual dysfunction. Less than half of them um, received any kind of sexual education or counseling. And that started from a a brochure, a booklet, or a 45-minute class. And then the, the half that received it, half of those said it didn't meet their needs. So this is in, you know, People who are already members of the National Spinal Cord Injury Association—they're right. so getting, they're in major rehab hospitals. They're getting, they're aware. They've joined, and and less than one quarter, you know, of got something that they felt met their needs. Now I'm reviewing a paper right now for a spinal cord journal, and it has to do with um, spinal cord rehab in in Jamaica, hmm. and um, only two. They, they interviewed, they, well, they sent 109 surveys, 45 people responded only, and, and they, you know, had a high level of sexual dysfunction and infertility, and only two people uh, out of those 45, which I, sounds pretty representative of what's going on down there, received, any, any, anyone asked them about their, uh, their erectile dysfunction, wow. and this was a, just a men or ejaculation, so only two got advice around treating their ED and, and fertility. So it's, it's, and I'm not saying, and nationally, I think it's, it's just worse than it was when I did it because length of stays are so short. Yeah. So I tell people I got seven months in 1982. I wouldn't get seven weeks now. So if you only have seven weeks, now this is in the air of spinal cord injury. Now in the air of spinal cord injury amongst disabilities, chronic conditions, I would say there is the most literature on all this, you know, in 19, or 2010, you know, I had sat on a panel for three years uh, 
with other people with and without spinal cord injuries, all from rehab, MDs, physical therapists, occupational therapists. And we created clinical practice guidelines for sexuality and reproductive health in people with spinal cord injuries. So this is a well-developed field. So you move over to MS yeah. and it's worse. <laughs> it's a much you worse know, picture. You, you move over to brain injury and it's worse. Uh, and you move over to cardiac issues and it's not good. You move over to reproductive cancers and it's not good. You know, so you, there's a shortfall in the education system where, you know, people, health professionals, whether they're MDs, uh, are not getting, uh, or even psychologists, they're not getting a lot of education in human sexuality. So, so you know, they're not prepared. Right. I was going to say, so it sounds like the they're not getting the education they need to educate and support the patients they're caring for. Right. Um, so, you know, like, I don't want to... An MD or other person, someone's not going to open a can of worms if they don't feel confident right. in responding. So I'm not going to ask you about your sexuality if I'm going to be hit with a lot of questions that's going to take a lot of time and I don't know the answers. Right. Well, and I think for a lot of healthcare professionals and a lot of disciplines, there is not a whole lot of content within the curriculum, whether it is nursing, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, MDs, PAs. There's not much, if anything, in the curriculum even on sexual response, normal sexual response, sexual right. function. Um, if you ask someone in, in any of those healthcare disciplines, whether they're in school currently or they're practicing, um, to talk about the sexual response cycle, I don't think you'd have much luck in finding right. how folks who know it. I've taught medical students at Quinnipiac, like PA students. I've taught medical students, doctor students at Yale. I've taught uh, at Morris School of Medicine here in Atlanta for five years. And so say I have a typical class of 50 students in front of me, you know, and I say, you know, how many people received, you know, took a, you know, required class in human sexuality, you know, in college or, you know, med school. And, you know, there's very few. And I ask how many people heard, of, you know, no human sexual response cycles. And, you know, just, it's just small. And yeah. that's, and if they do, it might be Masters and Johnson. They don't know. Right. Helen they don't know any more current. They, they, they don't know Rosemary Bassoon, you know. So there's, I always teach about human sexual response cycles in the plural. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, there really is a, a, a dearth of, of good education around this. So, and, you know, they come out and they're not required to, to do it, you know. So it's unfortunately right. not a standardized part of healthcare. So the med students on average around the country get eight hours, but that's on STDs, right? Right, and, and, right. and reproductive health, right? You know, a, really. STDs, reproductive health, and in some schools, a little bit on um, erectile dysfunction drugs, right? <laughs> you know, a, a heavy Viagra tilt, right? Um, Things that are treatable, yeah. right? Yeah, and and that's and that's plus, where the focus is. Plus, it's because when when Viagra came out, Pfizer gave a lot of $100,000 grants to in a competition to medical schools. So that's no, <laughs> that's seriously, a great way to so, get it. you know, if, if someone gives your school $100,000 uh, to develop a curriculum, right. <laughs> you're going to figure it out. You're going to, you're going to do it. And, the, and so, yeah, cause I did a, you know, a review of all these programs and, and there was a big surge in medical schools around that time. Hmm. 
Now, what do you wish healthcare professionals knew about patients with spinal cord injuries when it comes to sex and sexual health? And I say well, sexual health in the, in the positive right. way, not in the right. avoiding disease kind of way. Yeah, no, I, I, I the, the, in the simple answer I want to say is that we want you to ask. Okay. So <laughs> in that national survey that I did, and, and it's reflected in other surveys too, even in just women in healthcare, but in, in my population, only 8% of people's doctors initiated the conversation around sexual health, but they all wanted first, I asked the priority, and the first priority is they wanted their doctor to ask, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, one of the other priorities was anyone who cared, you know, so <laughs> they have to be the doctors, but people just expected their doctors to ask. So, you know, it could be like the nurse has more time, you know, and I teach, you know, interdisciplinary team approaches to sexual health care. So, you know, you're capturing in a rehab setting, occupational therapists may deal with one thing, uh, you know, putting on a condom or Mm -hmm. preparing for sex. The physical therapist may deal with positioning, right? And the psychologist might deal with, you know, the relationship issues if if they're trained in that area. So... Well, and that's the real strength of an interprofessional or inter- yeah. interdisciplinary team, too. And you mentioned a few things that I don't think a lot of lay people or or even healthcare professionals think about, which are things like positioning um, or helping to ensure that someone who's had a spinal cord injury or some other kind of injury that causes a, a an impairment of mobility or or some kind of manual functionality, people don't really think about the fact that there are things that healthcare professionals, but also caregivers um, and intimate partners and others can be trained and taught to do around positioning uh, to make it more comfortable or more more feasible for someone to have sex comfortably. Um, What do you teach healthcare providers about that? Uh, I teach, I teach everything. Um, So, you know, I, when I, one of the lessons I give to healthcare providers uh, is, systems that contribute to sexual response and expression. Uh, and so I take a systems approach. So, you know, and I'll ask, okay, you know, how many people, you know, if someone comes in and I'll start with the respiratory system and I'll say, how many people, you know, feel real sexy when they have a raging head cold, you know, <laughs> feel like making out and say, okay, you're not going to take a sexual history with someone with a head cold, but if someone has COPD, is on a respirator, has asthma, Right. You might want to say, how does your breathing affect your sexuality? So as we go through each system. So if we go through the musculoskeletal system. Right. So, you know, I work with injured vets and maybe we'll talk about that in the future. But if someone just lost, if someone just lost both legs, you know, how are we going to deal with their positioning? You know, Mm -hmm. one in one aspect, it gives them a lot more flexibility in another. You know, their their balance may be off. And, you know, so they have to change uh, uh, things, too. So. So we'll go over that, but what happens if someone has arthritis and they have joint pain? So, you know, we'll talk about how to, or back pain, how to work within what you're dealing with with the back pain. Someone have flexion or extension, you know, problems, and let's work within areas where they're comfortable, within areas they can move. And then we move to paralysis, you know, so what happens if someone's paralyzed, paralyzed from here or there? And, you know, it depends on the amount of time where we get, I always give resources, but we, whether we have time. To, to go into, you know, positioning devices, mm-hmm. you know, uh, supportive furniture, you know, um, any other type of adaptive equipment, adaptive vibrators, um, you know, almost anything that you could wear around. Uh, this is kind of uh, 
well, and I'll just say it, anything that you can wear around your penis. Yeah, you uh, can say the can, word penis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I didn't want to be like one one way or another. It's for men okay. or women. Sure. Uh, you, you can wear around your fingers. So if there's a, a vibrating bullet, right, and you have a problem holding with your hand and stimulating your partner with the hand, you could put that, if that vibrating bullet is like on a cock ring, you yeah. can put that ring around your fingers, right, and hold that bullet in your palm. So even with limited mo- movement, you can place your hand someplace or you're, even you're, no movement. If your hand is on the, the, you're in a power chair and your hand is on, on the armrest of the power chair, your partner can position themselves over your hand while you're kissing. So, so there's creativity know, there. Um, yeah, and and it have. sounds like when you work with healthcare professionals, if they would prioritize this, um, as an area where they want to want to get educated so that right. they can educate their patients, there's infinite information that you can yeah. convey to them. Like, I do a workshop with both health professionals and people with disabilities called the erotic grab bag. And so I usually it depends title. on the sign of the group. I bring a lot of different products. It could be from home products to, you know, more central products. And, and I have them reach into the bag and take a, a product. So, you know, one guy, it put his own product in a pencil, you know, um, uh, and it could be a spatula and it could be a scarf and it could be, you know, a, a DVD. And, you know, I make sure I put a lot of things. It could be body paints. And I say, tell me one thing you could do that's sensual or sexual, but doesn't include penetration. Mm-hmm. And so everyone gets to pick up a thing and say something. So it gets their creative mind thinking. It gets them comfortable or at least maybe giggling talking about the issues. And then I put them all in the groups of like five or six. And I say, okay, write me an erotic story where at least if I'm working with spinal cord injuries, one person in, in the, in the scene has a spinal cord injury. And everyone then has to, yeah, they have so much fun and they come up with these wonderful descriptions. So, you know, that's, it's a way to get people thinking out of the intercourse box right. and, and, well, and uh, letting them write the stories. I mean, what struck me as you were saying that, you know, you don't read a whole lot of erotica out there or anything in just even a regular vanilla mainstream book. You don't see or read lots of hot sex scenes involving people with spinal cord injuries. And so yeah. by giving people the chance to write a story, they're getting that may be the first story. You've I, ever wish, even- I wish I had a, a had captured all these over the years and I could put them all in the book. <laughs> you could do, put them in a book. So, that would be fabulous. They are so funny. And usually someone pegs somebody as like the oldest person in the hospital, the oldest nurse, right. you know, uh, who they think is maybe, uh, you know, shy or something to, to read it, you know, and they <laughs> always great. blow everybody away by how great they do. Uh, people have, you know, now with their, their phones and everything and like the microphone, they've, they've scripted them to music. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> why they're reading them back. And like when I do like a three day workshop, which I often, often, hardly ever get to do. I did one under a grant, you know, from the Paralyzed Veterans of America. But um, when there's when there's time, when I'm working towards skill development, so we use these things called OSCEs, Objective Standard yep. Clinical Exams. So you have people to be trained as patients and they're going to be interviewed by a health professional and they're only going to give up information based on how comfortable they feel and the question. But when I, when I did that on day three, and one of the things is, you know, so-and-so came in to not really getting the same thing out of sex anymore. So you're supposed to give her some specific suggestions. 
uh, you know, using the quote-unquote plicit model, permission-limited information-specific suggestions and intensive therapy, almost all these specific suggestions came from the erotic grab bag the day before. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So That's it's really a, a, an interesting way to see like that exercise. So some people are like, well, what's the purpose? This is, you know, they're having fun. And they don't realize that they're learning. They're, they are uh, learning. And then the next day, boom, it's coming out in here. Well, and, and by helping craft new stories, um, even though it's a fun exercise and they may giggle, um, you're laying down new tracks in their brain about, you know, what are what does it mean to be sexual? And what are the ways that people can be sexual? And for some folks yeah. who may have thought about it only as being penetrative, Tab right. A into slot B, um, right. everyone must be able-bodied, quote-unquote, sex. Um, what you're doing is helping shift the way people think. And that's yeah. a powerful thing. And, you know, it doesn't matter, as I'm saying. So I've done groups, large groups of, of veterans and their partners, and with a lot of invisible disabilities uh, that don't directly mm-hmm. affect um the ability to get an erection or stuff, but they may indirectly or, or, or slightly direct. But anyway, I'll get the question and it's usually framed this way from a, a partner or female partner. What do I do if he can't finish? Oh. So we have this, we have this sexual script. That means sex ends when he ejaculates, right? Right. That's the script. And so I work with people to say, okay, let's rewrite this sexual script. First, I have to educate them that, you know, we learn scripts, you know, right. uh, from, you know, Culture and like movies. And books. Kim, up in a tree, K I S. Then comes who whatever, our baby in a baby carriage. So they, no, that's a nursery rhyme and people know it, right? You identify with it, but that's a script. And then like you better stop right there before right. you go any further. <laughs> you know, so the first base, second base, third base home run, right? Where we all know what a home run is. So right. so we don't realize how, you know, we've learned intrinsically that this is the way things should work. And it's so, so if limited. You're, if, you're, that's if you're not straight, you know, that's a curveball, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, and if you can't come, that's a curveball, right. you know, and, and you're lost because that defined the finish for us. So, right. yeah, I, a lot of my work is helping people rewrite their sexual scripts. Uh, it's it's fantastic work that you're doing. I love talking with you. I wish we could do like a three hour podcast, but I imagine that that probably would not be terribly popular. Uh, but I really enjoyed talking with you today. This uh, was too. this was fantastic. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today. And I wish you a lot of luck in your future podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to M Dash, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Tweet your questions, comments, and suggestions to at m-podcast. Music used in this episode came from John Wright, who provided both the intro and outro music. Titles and links to songs used are available in the show notes.